is worthy of that, definitely. Join me, if you would, Acts chapter 7 in your Bibles. Uh, if you're joining us online, thank you for being with us this morning. I hope that you'll get your copy of a Bible. Again, you have a major advantage if you have a, uh, your Bible, because the, the verses this morning will only be on the screen at the beginning, and uh, so you'll want to keep referring back to those. Um, we're in quite a bit of a journey here, going through Acts chapter 7. I'm trying to scan, and I think most of you have been with us at least part of the, if I find one person, then i got to get a whole lot. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do a long review for one or two people. Here's the scenes. Let's review. We always need to review, by the way. Let me say it this way. Um, I review often for those that maybe have missed some time, but when I pick up in my private reading where I left off the day before, unless it's, I'm in the Psalms or Proverbs or something like that, then I want to review in my mind, okay, what was, where did I leave off? And that's going to flow into the next one. So we should just be in a habit of always reviewing when we come to the Word of God, getting the context. So here's the scene. We're studying a message, in essence, a defense by a man named Stephen, one of the great Christians in the early church. He's been accused by his own people. They hate him because he's been accused in their mind of being against Moses. And particularly what that means, what we find out as we, as we ended uh, chapter 6, in their mind, being against Moses particularly was not just the civil law of Israel and not the moral law necessarily. It seems to me that they thought Stephen is against the ceremonial law. All those sacrifices because they, didn't, they again boil it down. And the accusation is this man does not stop speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple. And so is that true? Was Stephen against the temple? So they arrest him and they take him down to the Sanhedrin, the high court of the land, some 71 members presided over by the high priest. And they ask, are these things so? Is this true? Are you against Moses and the ceremonial law? Are you against the temple? And we couldn't say for sure. I I gave my opinion. I dare say that Stephen was one of the first ones, and maybe even he said it, or he at least taught in a way that helped people to understand well, the way he views things, because Jesus has died on the cross and paid for everyone's sins, he thinks we don't need to keep offering any more animal sacrifices like Israel had been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. We don't need to offer the sacrifice. We could stop all of that. And Stephen now has to answer those charges because that is correct. And by the way, there is no temple today. He, he's charged with saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and change all the customs. And he wants to know, are these charges so? So now he's put on trial and his life is at stake. And Stephen does not answer yes or no. He goes off into this long message, uh, hitting lots of details into the history of Israel. And he wants the Sanhedrin, rather than just give you a yes or no answer, I need you guys to hang with me and see if you've ever connected the dots just this way. And so he goes all the way back to Abraham, the first Jew, and really the message there, like six or seven verses we looked at. The main message was this. Hey, Sanhedrin, let's remember, you want to know, am I against our own nation? Am I against our temple? Am I against our holy book? Am I against the law? Well, let's just remember God appeared to our forefather Abraham when he was down in Mesopotamia, the implication... He was living in sin. God did not choose the nation of Israel because we're better and greater and more numerous. He just had grace and mercy. He just picked Abraham. He just decided, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. Not because he was a less of a sinner. He was an idolater when God came to him. 
Then he moves forward and he talks about, in Stephen's address, he really singles out Joseph. Because Joseph is the first great deliverer that was sent to the nation of Israel to preserve them from famine. So knowing that a famine was coming to the land of Egypt and the land of Israel, God sent the Jews a deliverer in the form of Joseph. And he has this ability to see and and have dreams and interpret the dreams. And he starts telling those things. And his brothers, the ten older heads of the tribes, again, here's where we're at. We're here at this point in the timeline where Stephen's talking to the Sanhedrin, referring back 2,000 years earlier to Abraham. Now he's referring to a few hundred years less than that to now Joseph and his brothers. And he's saying, hey, our forefathers, the patriarchs, hated their brother. They were so jealous, they hated him, they wanted to kill him, but they sold him into slavery. But God went with him into Egypt, separated from his brothers, and God just kept blessing him. Wrong would happen to him, and he just kept rising above because God's hand was on him until ultimately he became the number two man in all of Egypt. Went into Egypt as a Hebrew foreign slave, and was in, a, in just a matter of years, he becomes the second-ranked man in all of Egypt. And God uses him to save both nations from a devastating famine that would have wiped them out had God not sent Joseph. And Pharaoh appointed him to that position. But time moves on. And now, Stephen, what we're in now is this longer section. Stephen, I believe because he's accused of blaspheming Moses, he's going to spend more time on Moses than all the other uh, patriarchs that he's going to talk about in Israel's history. More time on him than all the others combined, really. And now we have this long message that really we end up being in three parts. Today is the middle portion of the, of the section on Moses. And here's what we learn. God had told Abraham that the descendant, his descendants were going to be in 400 years of slavery when they go on to, down into this nation. But God was going to deliver them. And now it was time for God to send a deliverer. So here's where we're at. Last week, we were 350 years into the slavery of Israel in Egypt. So the Egyptians had put them in slavery. The the Hebrews were multiplying. That was a threat to the Egyptians. They put them in slavery. Finally, it got so bad, this one particular pharaoh who was really threatened by the Jews, he started killing all the firstborn, all, all the sons, not the firstborn, all the sons of the Jews. He's killing them all. And in that moment, 350 years into the slavery, that's when Moses is born. And last week what we learned was that God protected him for the first three months of his life being with his parents. But then he too has to be exposed because Pharaoh was killing all the babies of the Hebrews, all the boys. And Moses is a boy. And so rather than allowing him to be killed, they protected him for three months. But even now they can't hide him anymore. But they put him in a basket and they put him out in the Nile River like they were supposed to throw their babies in the Nile River. But God protected and sovereignly controlled and two things happen. His basket ends up going where Pharaoh's daughter is down bathing. She ends up seeing the basket. Her women help her get that. And the other thing we learned was God caused Moses, this little baby, to be so beautiful so beautiful. I mean, the Bible says you're beautiful, then you know you're be- beautiful. And when, and when Pharaoh's daughter opens this little basket carrying this little three-month-old baby, apparently he just melts her heart the way he cries and no doubt the way he smiles and laughs. And she wants to adopt him, and she does. And Pharaoh, her dad, lets it happen. He lets it happen and lets her raise him up. And so he's reared in their schools and learns all the, the great learning of, of Egypt of that day. And then here's where we left off last week. Being reared as an Egyptian, the Lord put it into Moses' heart at age 40 
to go associate himself with the Hebrew slaves, his true people, his biological people, because he believes in their God. And so he's going to turn his back on the Egyptian culture and all the treasures. And the book of Hebrews says he's going to turn his back on the pleasures of sin that's only temporary and for a season. He turns his back on that, and he associates himself with the Hebrew slaves. And as he goes down to visit his people, there's an, there's an Egyptian who's mistreating one of the Hebrews, and Moses steps in and kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. He comes back the next day thinking they're surely going to see that God has raised me up to be their deliverer. But then two of the, the, the Hebrews are now fighting. Moses steps between them. He's like, stop, we're brothers, you're brothers. And they thrust him aside asking him this question. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Translation. You think you're better than us because you're a palace dweller? We don't want you. And they shove him away. And now, having turned and switched allegiance from Egypt to the Hebrews, to the nation of Israel, now Pharaoh is going to be out to kill Moses. And he knows this. And so he flees. He runs And he goes into exile in the land of Midian, two or three hundred miles away. And while he's there, he meets a man. His name is Jethro. He ends up marrying his daughter. Uh, I don't know if it's Jethro Bodine. I don't think it was Jethro Bodine. But uh, no, that's horrible. I have not thought that all week. Where did that just come? Anyway, so Beverly Hillbillies, for those of you that are like 35 and under, that's an old show. Anyway, all right. Jethro becomes his father-in-law. He marries his daughter. God gives him two sons. And now watch, the years are just clicking by. He's there for a long time. out. Remember how we talked about the life of Moses is in three phases? There's the first 40 years in Pharaoh's house. And then he goes into exile. And we're getting ready to read. That's 40 years. And we know that he's going to come back in today's passage. And then he's going to ultimately lead the children of Israel out in the wilderness. And that'll be next week's passage. So we kind of saw the first 40 years last week. We're starting, just kind of, again, not a lot of details. What happened? Well, he's out watching his father-in-law's sheep one day, and then we get to today's text. So that's where we're at. Let's look at verses 30 to 39. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, um, none of the commentaries that I looked at break at verse 38 or verse 39. They don't, but I just looked at the text, and I was like, I cannot make it all the way down to verse number 43. We're going to stop it, Lord willing, around verse 38, but I'm going to include in our reading verse 39. So I'm going that far, and Lord willing, next time we'll pick up at verse 39 and hopefully get through verse maybe 50. We'll see. Today is 30, technically to 38, but we're going to read 39. Here we go. So he's exiled in the land of Midian. He's running. Pharaoh's out to kill him. Now, when 40 years had passed, that's a long time. That's 14,600 days. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. An angel appears to Moses in the wilderness. So Stephen's telling this history. The Sanhedrin know their history, but have have they ever pieced? And and Stephen's very selective in the details, and everything is on purpose. And as I said a couple of weeks ago... Are they picking up all that he's laying down? Because he's laying down a lot. And I believe the further he goes into this message, the more they're getting what he's saying and the implication he's made. And the noose is, in essence, tightening around their neck. And Stephen just keeps verbally laying it on. And now they realize why nobody could ever beat this guy in a debate. Because he has such a spirit about him and he has such wisdom. And he has such knowledge of what we call the Old Testament. Verse 30, here we go. Now, when the 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. 
Literally, Moses watching his father-in-law's sheep. There's this bush. It's over there, and it's on fire. But it's not being consumed. Next. When Moses saw it, he was amazed. Amazed means this is amazed. I can't figure this out. This is amazing. This is confusing. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. This bush that is burning, but it's not being consumed. This is not a wildfire. It's like one bush. When he saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. So he draws close to look at the sight. And then there's this voice starts talking to him. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not to look. So he sees this sight, turns aside, checks it out. It's amazing. It's confusing. He wants to know what's going on. He draws closer and closer, and then God starts talking to him. And next thing you know, he won't even look up. He's done looking at it. He's not looking. Why? Because God is now talking to him. He's so afraid. Then the Lord said to him, so again, Stephen is selective in what he's pulling. Then the Lord said to him, take off. Guys, listen, catch it. Those of you who have been with us for weeks, really think, why is Stephen using this and telling this to the Sanhedrin? What are they to hear this, this, this day of this trial? Verse 33. Stephen tells them, then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Hey, Sanhedrin. God appears to Moses in the land of Midian, tells him to take his shoes off because the place he's standing is holy ground. You want to know, am I against the temple? Am I against the temple here in Jerusalem? Do you remember what happened down in the land of Midian? Take your shoes off, Moses. This is holy ground. And it's not like Moses didn't see the signs that said, oh, I'm sorry, God, I missed the signs that said holy ground. No. It is now holy ground. Verse 34. God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. That's a shortened version. And there's some more that comes after that. Moses ends up asking God, they're going to want to know. I'm going to go back and say I had this encounter and you told me I'm supposed to go back and lead your people out of Egypt. They're going to want to know, well, if you really met the God of our fathers, what's his name? And then God tells him his name. And he's going to, he's going to be like, but I'm not a good talker. No, actually before that he says, but what if they don't believe me? And God says, they will believe you. What if they don't? Well, you see that staff in your hand? Throw it down. He throws it down. It turns into a snake. And he grabs it back up, and it turns back into a staff. He says, put your hand in, inside your clothing. He puts his hand in. He brings it out. It's full of leprosy. Put it back in. He pulls it out. It's back to normal. They're going to believe you. I'm going to give you power. No, no, God, you don't understand. I'm just not a good talker. I'm going to be with you, and you'll have your brother Aaron with you if you need him. You'll be fine. And then finally Moses does the old, God, please, just, just pick somebody else. I don't want to do it. Just pick some. And then God got angry. Kind of reminds me, if you're sitting here this morning and for no good reason you are not planning on coming to the exchange to learn how to better share your faith. God sends us on a mission. And sometimes, what do we do? I don't really know. No, you got to know God. You need to get to know God. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not a good talker. I will be with you. I'll be with you. Okay. But I just don't want to do it. Send somebody else. And then God gets angry. I'm sending you to go tell people. Verse 35. 
Come now, I will send you to Egypt. And now Stephen talking to the Sanhedrin. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, I want you guys to really pick up on something. Verse 35, 36, 37, 38, all start with the same idea. Stephen is pounding away. It's this Moses. It's the same man. It's, that's, it's that Moses. This man. What's his point? He's Sanhedrin. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs. Notice what Stephen's saying. He performed wonders and signs. You guys love Moses. Do you remember? He performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Where? In Egypt, at the Red Sea, in the wilderness. And all these miracles keep happening over and over for 40 years. Verse 37. Stephen to the Sanhedrin. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Sanhedrin, you remember that? You remember this great prophecy where Moses said, Hey, Israel, get ready. God's going to send you a prophet, and he's going to be like me. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. He's going to be like me. You're going to notice some similarities between his life and ministry and my life and ministry. And when he comes, you better hear him and you better obey him. Stephen says, This is that Moses who made that prophecy. And then the end of our actual text is 38, then 39. This is the one, talking about Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Yes, up on Mount Sinai, he receives the Ten Commandments and he's out in this tabernacle in the wilderness and Moses keeps having these face-to-face meetings with God and God just keeps telling him and he eventually writes the first five books of the Bible. And here Stephen is saying... You remember that? You remember where they were and how he received the living oracles to give to us? And then it goes into next week's text. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Would you notice this morning, number one, God appeared to recommission Moses. God appeared to recommission Moses. It's been some... 14,600 days, as I said earlier, that's a long time. Moses is 80 years old, 80 years old. Again, I don't know what his mindset is. Does Moses, is it, as God approaches, and is there anything as he's heading back to Egypt, is there any thought in his mind, Lord, really, now that I'm 80, now that I'm 80, I don't have the energy I had when I was 40. Why couldn't this all have worked out back then? I, was, I had a lot more energy when I was 40. Now he's 80 years old. I wonder this. I'm not saying this. I'm just wondering, and I think this is the case. Here's my question. Had Moses, after those 14,000-plus days, forgot about the call that God put in his heart? Had he kind of forgot about it and moved on? I dare say he probably had in his mind. He probably maybe for a while thought, but I just knew. I I know I'm supposed to be. God put it in my heart. I mean, it was in my soul, my spirit. I I was consumed with that. I, I knew I was the one. And then... A hundred days and five hundred days and a thousand years and five thousand days and five thousand days and ten thousand days ago. Has he long forgot about it, but God hasn't forgot about it. And where once he just put it in his heart, now God comes to him and meets with him in a face-to-face audible style. 
So if you would look at verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, there is a little confusion here. I'm not going to spend long on it. I'm going to go with uh, what Stuart Custer has offered because I think it is accurate. Who is this angel? Notice an angel. Down in verse number 53, we're going to end up hearing Stephen finish his message before he's rudely cut off by saying, using this phrase, delivered by angels. How the law was delivered by angels. But here, who's, who's appearing? Forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai in a, in a flame of fire in a bush. Who is this angel? If you're taking notes, write this down. Custer offers the following. The word angel in verse number 30 must be referring to the angel of the Lord. And that's an Old Testament phrase, a term, which in essence is pointing to the manifestation of the divine presence. So what I challenge you to do is go back and read Exodus, read this, read this text here. It is very clear in the Bible, whoever this angel, whatever this manifestation is, it is a manifestation of the divine presence of God himself. This quote, angel, the angel of the Lord, is actually a representation, a manifestation of God himself, and it's in this flame. And God is often associated with fire several places throughout the scripture, so... In my mind, I thought of this. There was a point, and I believe it was Genesis 18, where there are these three beings, these three beings, angels, that come up and they start talking to Abraham. But one of them is the angel of the Lord, and it was God telling Abraham about what was going to happen with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so what's happening here? This, quote, angel is God in some because God doesn't have a body. And did you also notice this? Just put this away in your mind. Some people believe the whole idea of... The lake of fire, that's a myth, that's a fable, because people can't have bodies and be on fire for eternity. But this proves God can cause material, physical things to burn and yet not be consumed by the fire. And so the Bible teaches that at the great white throne judgment, all lost people will be reunited with their body and they will be judged and they will be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity and they will burn. And no doubt wishing to be annihilated but will not be consumed by it. God can make that happen. Would you notice verse 32? This voice came to him and the voice says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God, and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and he dared not to look. There's something I've learned through the years. When you come across a person who spends a lot of time with the Lord and has had a real genuine encounter with God, they have a healthy fear of God, a healthy reverential fear of God. When you come across someone like has very flippant attitude, no fear of the Lord, then you can just mark in your mind, you've never met God, have you? You've never had an encounter. You've never had a deep encounter. The Bi all through the Bible, every time someone has a genuine, true encounter with the real God, it is always humbling and a fearful thing. And that's what we find Moses on his face, daring not to look up. But as you look at verse 32, God introduces himself to Moses and says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And I, I'm going to just touch on this. I wish we had time. If this was Wednesday night, I would have you guys break into groups and you would write down and we would have a longer list than I'm about to give you. I would say, what are the things that we learn from this expression of God? But to give you the three, I'm going to, I'm going to advise and I'm going to propose to you that this verse, this incident with Moses and God, it either directly proves or implies multiple truths. And we've narrowed it down to just three. And the first one I'm playing off of this, watch. It's where Moses says, but 
They're going to ask me, what's your name? If this has really happened, they're going to want to know. And what am I going to tell them what your name is in God? What does God say his name is? Who remembers? I am that I am. I am who I am. What is your name, God? And God says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And so the name of God in the Bible is I am. The I am. What does that tell us? Here comes God, and here's this fire, and Moses approaches, and he's curious, and all of a sudden, God starts talking to him and says, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. Three things. Number one, would you notice, this points out to us the self-existent and self-sufficient nature of God, and it's very different than us. It's the self-existent nature of God. Self-existent. You and I came from our parents who came from their parents, who came from their parents all the way back to Eve and Adam. And Eve came from Adam. And Adam came from God. We are created beings. God, the great I am, was never created. You came from, as I said, your parents who came from their parents. God came from nowhere because God is God is everywhere. God has always been everywhere. And he is completely self-sufficient. We're not self-sufficient. You have to have food and water and oxygen and clothing and protection to be able to live. God needs none of those things. He doesn't need company. He's self-sufficient. Before I hit the second one, can I just kind of throw this out to you? Because this truth has branches off of it. And one of them is that the God who is the one true God of the whole world and all of the universe and all of humanity, all of history and all the angels, all creation. This God is the I am God. What that means is he is stable. He's firm. He's fixed. He is. He's the I am God. With all the videos floating around, have have you ever seen a video of like a little baby And I'm not joking. I mean, within 10 seconds. You ever seen one of these? Within 10 seconds, that baby can go from pouting to crying to smiling to laughing back to pouting and crying in 10 seconds. You ever seen one of those? No, we don't need a 53-year-old man trying to act that out. You just, in your mind, picture the little baby, all the kind of poochy-lipped, crying, they see something, probably some goo-goo face, blah, 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 and they smile, and then they laugh, and then they remember why they were crying in the first place. That little, up, now here's the thing, their actual conditions have not changed. All that's changed is their perception of their conditions. Everything's the exact same. That's a microcosm of me and you. We are such on this roller coaster. We will change in a moment. And actually our condition hasn't changed. All that's changed is our perspective and our way of thinking about it. And now now we're up and down. God never does that. God is solid and stable. He's the I am God. Do y'all know that this doctrine I'm talking about right now, this doctrine is what connects us to the Bible. When you and I read the Bible, we're reading a book at its youngest parts, its newest parts are 2,000 years old, and its oldest parts are 3,500 years old. Why would people today read that? We are not connected to the Bible because we live in the same land that they do. We wear the same clothes. We don't have the same diet. We don't speak the same language. We don't have the same culture. What connects us to them is this God who's the same then, 3,500 years ago, 
2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, today, and if God doesn't come back, Lord Jesus doesn't come back in another 1,000 years, this book will still be relevant to those people even though the world will have changed because God doesn't change. That's a key thing. He's the I am. Number two, what we see in this text is the eternal life of believers. The eternal life of believers. Jesus played off this text. There's people who denied the resurrection. Jesus took them back to the book of Exodus. Notice as Stephen's telling the account to a room that's mostly filled with Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. Stephen says, do you remember when God came to Moses? And he says, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. What's the point? God didn't say, hey, Moses, come over here. I was the God of your fathers. I was the God of Abraham. No, The point is this, they're alive at this point. They were alive and they were well. Their bodies were dead and on earth, but their soul and their spirit was in a place called paradise. And God was with them. I'm with them where they're at. They are still alive. So the point being, if you ever put your faith and trust in Christ, you better mentally go ahead and get ready. You are going to live forever. You can't lose it because you are now under the umbrella of the I am. God is and will be forever your God. Third thing I noticed, did you write this down? God has personal relationships with his people. God has personal relationships. Notice he doesn't just say, I was the God of your fathers. Blanket. God speaks to Moses and he says, I am the God of Abraham. This is important. God says, I had a relationship with Abraham, and he did. And then God had a special, unique to him, individual relationship with Isaac. And then God had his own special, individual relationship with Jacob. In other words, there are principles and truths and dynamics that that apply to all people who have a genuine relationship with the Lord. But each person should have their own individual relationship with God. I ask you this morning, check your heart, check your life. Is it true to say you have your own relationship with God that is so real you can talk about it, you can write about it. It is unique to you. A lot of the same dynamics as everybody else in here. You have your own. If you do not, you say, I'm a Christian, but I just don't really have what you're describing. Can I encourage you? Don't settle. Don't settle. Talk to God. Lord, I want a relationship with you beyond being saved. Would you look at verse 33? Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Why is Stephen using this? Obviously, when we take our shoes off, we don't do that as much here in America. Some still do, and that's fine. What that is, we're taking our shoes off as a sign of respect for our host. And God says, as a, sign, as a sign of respect to him, you need to take your shoes off. Why is Stephen doing this? Remember, think, think. Let's put ourselves back in that scene 2,000 years ago when Stephen's talking to the Sanhedrin, making a defense, and he's intentionally going through and hitting all these things, and now we learn why no one could ever defeat him in debate. Here's what he's saying. Verse 33, the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Nowhere near, 200 plus miles away from Jerusalem, and Moses, Stephen's reminding the Sanhedrin that God calls this unique place, this is holy ground. The Bible says that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. There's evidence of his 
creative power and intelligence and wisdom and his creativity. The whole earth is filled with that. But some places are called holy. And the reason they're holy is because God has uniquely manifested his presence. God has specially made a revelation about himself in that place. That's what Stephen's trying to get across. This is not in Jerusalem. It was down in the land of Midian, and God reveals himself. What is Stephen saying? He's saying, hey, Sanhedrin, I know you're really defensive of the temple. Man, you think really highly of what we call the Holy of Holies, but let's make clear, the burning bush was not secondary, second place. It was not inferior to the Holy of Holies. God and his presence is what made it holy. And then lastly, under our first point this morning, As you're writing that, I'm going to keep moving into verse number 34. Because I find, I found myself asking a question when I was first reading it this week. And I want to see if you ask the same question. Look at verse 34. Moses, take your shoes off. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Here's what I need to talk to you about. God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've seen it. And I've heard their groaning. So I know you're writing, and if you can, possibly do two things at once. Think about that. They're my people. They're my chosen people whom I love, whom I'm pouring my grace out upon. And because God is all seeing and all hearing and all knowing, there's, he can never see something that he hasn't seen or know that was going to happen. He can never hear something that he didn't already know. He sees everything. He hears everything. And so, hey, Moses, I've seen all the affliction that has happened to my people, and I've heard all of their inward groaning and their outward cries. I've heard it all. Is there a question pops in your mind? Does anybody? I don't know. Does anybody read that like me? Hear it again. Hey, Moses, I've seen my people's affliction, and I've heard all their cries. Been watching the whole thing for 430 years now. Raise your hand if there's a question that pops in your mind. Is there just a few of us? What is a question that comes to mind? What is it? Why are you waiting so long? Mine was worded basically a little little different. Here's mine. Then why haven't you done something? Apparently, there's only about a dozen of us thought that. So either that or the rest of you are like, well, I was thinking that. I just didn't raise my hand. Think about that. Hey, Moses, I've seen all the hardship and all the affliction. I've seen all the cruelty. And it is affliction. It's gotten worse and worse, and now they're killing their babies. I've seen the whole thing, and I've heard all their inward and the outward. Now, guys, here's where I'm at on that. I believe, I am convinced that God will allow us to ask him questions, but how you ask it is important. Just this past Wednesday, and I don't remember all the details. I caught myself having one of these conversations. And I believe we can ask it respectfully. And we can say, Lord, why? Because you are God, because you have that ability, why this? And why aren't you? And why are you waiting? And why do you allow this? And how come you're not doing that? Guys, what I'm saying is that you can ask this respectfully. But Lord, if if you've been, not if, but since you've been seeing it all, why are you waiting? Here's what we can't do, because most of us, here's, what, here's how I first heard it in my mind. Moses, I've, I've seen it all, and I've heard it all. Then why haven't you done something about it? And see, that's where we cross the line, and now we set ourselves up. We are God's judges, and we're saying it arrogantly and with condemnation, and that's what we can't do. 
One, God doesn't have to answer us, nor did he answer me with audible voice Wednesday morning. And I didn't expect him. It was really a time where just like, Lord, I just want to express this is where I'm at on some things. And I don't expect audible voice. And if you want, in the coming days, maybe I'll discover and I'll be reminded in your word why you're doing all these things. But at the moment, I'm a little bit, I'm just not full of theology like I should be. And so I just kind of got these questions. And that's a legitimate question. But while we're asking that, let's be honest enough to also ask this other question. Because you could ask a second question a different way. Lord, why do you even give them the time of day? You already sent them a deliverer and they threw him away. Yes, I know you hear everything and say everything, but why would you even care? You sent them a, their deliverer and they cast him aside. And so as I thought of it that way, here's what I realized. So I'm going to give you a principle. Often people want God to help them. But they don't want his methods. Say that again. Often people want God to help them, but they don't want his methods. Have you ever come across this? Someone's going through a real hardship, and they know you're a Christian, and they start talking to you, and they, they come from this real accusatory, then why don't God, and I need God, and how come? And if you just start just scratching, and this is Christians also, you just scratch a little below the surface, and like, hey, can I ask you an honest question? Honest, you give me an honest answer? I will. Yes, I'll give you an honest answer. How is your prayer life? I don't really pray. Okay. You want God's help, but you're not praying. How's your time in the Word? I don't really read the Bible. How often do you go to church? Rarely. Every now and then. I'm here today. Oh, okay. But you want God's help. Oh, yeah, I want God's help. But you don't pray. You don't read God's Word. When you do read God's Word and when you do hear it preached, do you believe it and do you respond with obedience? No, 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 and no. Why isn't God helping me? Can I have like... Six months of your time for specialized for me? No, you can't. You're not doing the basic things. You can't get six months of my time. Forget it. You don't really want God's help. You want God to just wave a magic wand and fix things in your life. And I'm sorry if that sounds bitter, but sometimes that's what people need to hear. Do the basics. And sometimes God needs to do more than the basics. And he does. But don't ask for extravagant, personalized when we're not doing the basics. Number two. God used Moses to deliver Israel. This is verse 35, 36. God used Moses to deliver Israel. And I know that as you're writing that, that sounds very, very basic. Like, well, that's a basic point. But if I could do this verbally, that what you don't see visually, can I do this? The point, I'm, I, again, I've, I've read this like 30 times this week, and I'm trying to think, what? is happening. Why is Stephen saying what he says in 35 and 36? And here's the point, I believe. It's not just, and God used Moses to deliver Israel. No, watch. It's God used Moses. Okay? No, no, no. Hear me. God used Moses to deliver Israel, and I say Moses because God did not use someone else. God used Moses to deliver Israel, not someone else. What does that mean? God used the same man they rejected. That's who God used. No, 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 we rejected him. That's who I'm using. I am using 
Moses. Look at verse 35. This man, Stephen says, hey Sanhedrin, this man whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man got sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in, in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This man is the one. That's who God sent. He sent Moses. God used Moses to deliver Israel. MacArthur helps us here. He writes the following quote. He says, quote, It is sometimes argued that Jesus could not have been the Messiah, or else Israel would have recognized him. You ever heard that? Oh, no, no, listen. Hey, listen. Jesus is not the Messiah. We need to keep looking for another. How do you know? Because Israel didn't accept him. If he's the Messiah, Israel will receive their Messiah, and they've rejected him, so he's not it. Hold on. Stephen's point is Jesus' rejection by Israel is not an indictment on Jesus. It's an indictment on Israel. MacArthur continues. However, they rejected both Joseph and Moses. Well, Israel's rejected Jesus, so he can't be the Messiah. No, that doesn't hold water as an explanation. Why? Because they've also rejected both Joseph and Moses. This was their typical response to those God sent to deliver them. This is what they do. God sends them a deliverer, Joseph, and they reject him, sell him into slavery. God sends them Moses, and they reject him. Who who made you a ruler and a judge over us? They reject him. This is Israel's pattern, and we know they've done the same thing with Jesus. So y'all help me for a moment, okay? That has several blanks in it, so you're writing. Those of you that can multitask, answer this question in your mind. So here's what I need to do. I'm going to make a not-so-imaginary conversation. There's the children of Israel, and they're asking this question. And I want you to know, what is the answer? I want you all to help me. What is the answer to this question? Here's their question. They're talking to Moses. So picture the whole nation looking at Moses, asking, Who says you are our ruler and judge? Who says you are our ruler and judge? Is it Moses? I say I am. Not Moses. Who says you are our ruler and judge? What's the answer? God. Uh, I did. Oh, wait. I said he's your ruler and judge. And what's happening, here's the dynamic. Israel responds back. But we don't like him. We don't want him. God's reply back. But he's the one. Listen, y'all feel the tension. Do you feel what Stephen is doing with the Sanhedrin? But we, let's talk about our forefather, Sanhedrin. Remember that? We don't want Moses. And God's reply, he's the one I've chosen. And you will have to receive him. Now you can reject his deliverance. But I'm not sending you another deliverer. He's the one you will get. If you get delivered, it will be Moses that delivers you from, Israel, from Egypt. I'm not sending you another one. He's the one. I'm God. You're not. He's my deliverer. He's the one I'm sending. And they didn't like that. Are y'all making the connection already in your mind? What, why is Stephen using this? We don't like him as a deliverer. Well, he's the one you're getting. You're not getting another one. A little side thought like I had a while ago. A little summary thought that hit my mind. God alone makes the rules about salvation. God makes the rules about salvation. 
I've actually heard a different form of this question. Here's theirs. Who says you are our ruler and judge? Here's one I've heard. Heard it literally with my own ears. You Christians. Who says there's only one way to heaven? You ever heard that? Who says there's only one way to heaven? Y'all are so narrow. Who says there's only... What's the answer? God. Where? In the Bible. Where in the Bible? Do y'all remember where in the Bible? Because we go around, we say that Jesus is the only way. Where? Two passages jump to my mind. John chapter 14, you remember that? John 14 verse number 6. Jesus, the Son of God says... I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty narrow. Who says there's only one way? Well, Jesus did. And in Acts chapter 4, just a few pages before this, Acts chapter 4, Stephen in front of the same Sanhedrin, in verse number 12, saying all these things about Jesus, also says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's it. Who says there's only one God, Jesus, so we want to line our message up. There is only one way to heaven. Before we go to our third point this morning, a very important point to today's message, and the whole thing that Stephen is doing here is is in verse 36. Would you look at it with your eyes? You've got your Bible open. Watch what he does. Sanhedrin, it's that Moses, the one you rejected. That's the one God sent. And then when he sent him, here's what happened. This man led them out. Performing wonders, like wonders, like it caused wonder, amazement, like their minds were blown. And signs, these miracles, wonders served as signs about God's power and there's no doubt about who his man is. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs, watch what Stephen does, in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Do you see what he just did? See what he's doing? See, anybody can come up and say, hey, everybody gather around. Listen, I've had an encounter with God, and God has told me that I am your leader. Oh, that's nice. How are we to know? There's no doubt. Write this down. Anybody can claim to have had an encounter with God, but Moses, here's a major point Stephen's making. Moses was validated by all the miracles that God performed through him In multiple places over a period of 40 years. It's not like one shady, distant. Man, that was pretty impressive that one time. No. Over and over. Confirmed. Validated. No doubt about it. Clear. Multiple. Miraculous things. Validating Moses as the man of God. And God used this. I don't have time to develop these. But can I read a few of the things that God used Moses to do? Have you ever gone back and thought about it? What these people were, y'all remember where we're ending today in verse 39, right? Y'all remember that? Our fathers refused to obey him and thrust him aside and in their heart. This is after all that I'm about to read you. This is in that. He turns, again, God does it but uses Moses. Hear this list. He turns the Nile River into blood. Predicts it. Doesn't just like start happening. Uh, Yeah, I did that. No, no, no. Says it's going to happen. Turns the Nile River into blood. Tells them, tomorrow, frogs are going to come up out of and cover the land. Frogs cover the land. These are all plagues. Then lice and these biting gnats covers the land. Flies cover the land. 
Then the killing of their livestock, a plague, it's going to happen tomorrow about this time. Your livestock are all going to start dying all across the land of Egypt. And sure enough, it happens just like he says. Boils, number six, start breaking out all over these people. The Egyptians are getting boils. The Hebrews are not getting sick and their livestock's fine and it's not happening over in their land. This is miraculous. Pharaoh's advisors are starting to say, dude, let them go. This is horrible. Just let those people leave. It's not worth it. Number seven, hail with fire mingled in among it. It starts destroying their crops. And finally, what's left over, number eight, locusts devour the land as Moses predicted. And again, please just let them go. No, he keeps hardening his heart. No, I'm not going to. Finally, God, through Moses, sends this massive darkness. And I mean this bone chilling. I mean where their lamps won't work inside the house. Just darkness is permeating the land. Finally, he's about ready to go. But then he changes his mind again. And God's had enough. And the tenth plague is God, in one night, two things, two miracles. Sends the death angel and kills all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But the children of Israel have none of their firstborn die because they... Followed the instructions. Then they each for every house, they killed a lamb and took the blood of that lamb and put it over their door and side posts. And they go into their house, in essence, being covered by the protection of this lamb. And the death angel passes over the Hebrew houses and kills all the Egyptian houses. And the next day, Pharaoh is finally like, yes, you and your people leave. But God had already told the the Hebrews... Before this happens, go and borrow from your Egyptian neighbors. Borrow their earrings, borrow their gold, and borrow their silver. And these Egyptians by this point are like, yes, here, you can definitely borrow it. And then this happens, and the next day, as Israel's leaving, they are walking out mega rich. I mean, mega rich. And the Egyptians are like, just go, just take it. And Israel, in essence, has been paid back for 430 years of slavery. And they're really rich now. And there's this cloud And it leads the way by the the daytime. And then there's this pillar of fire at nighttime. And they go up to the Red Sea. And then here comes Pharaoh's army because he's changed his mind. And they're going to make those Hebrews come back. And they're getting ready to have a battle. But no, Moses stands and using his staff. And the Red Sea, think about that one. That's the one that's referred to over and over in the Old Testament. Just put yourself there. If you've you've been down to Myrtle Beach recently, I'm not saying the Red Sea is nothing like the, the Atlantic Ocean broadways. But if you were to go out to that water and you just, Moses raises his staff and speaks the word and the water just stands up and you cross on dry ground and you get down in there and you're walking, walking, you get out the other side and here comes Pharaoh and his army behind you and then Moses gives the word and the water comes back and drowns Pharaoh's army. Would you be able to forget that? I think I would remember that. On top of the other things that we saw. And then God leads them out into Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on Mount Sinai for 40 days. And he's not eating or drinking. And he comes down and his face is shining. And their food is literally falling out. Never happened before. Never happened since. Their food just every day for 40 years keeps falling out of the sky. It's all they could ever want. Finally, they complain. We want some meat. God causes quail to just come down head high all around the ground. They start killing and eating these birds. We need something to drink. There's this rock that apparently follows them through the wilderness. And this rock just keeps giving... This guy's validated. There's no doubt about it. He's the man of God. And he led them out. Number three this morning. God not only used Moses to deliver Israel, he also used Moses to speak to Israel. Verse 37. Why is Stephen using verse 37? Hey, Sanhedrin, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites... 
God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among from your brothers. Israel, listen. Great prophecy, one of the greatest that Moses made. As a true prophet, I am telling you that God is going to send you a prophet in the future. Here's what you need to do. His life and ministry is going to be very similar to mine. You're going to find a lot of similarities. Would you write this down? What's Stephen doing? Stephen's been accused of blaspheming Moses. But rather than blaspheming Moses, Stephen is actually urging the Sanhedrin to honor Moses as a true prophet because his prophecy about a prophet that was to come that was going to be like him has actually already happened. You think I'm against Moses? I'm not against Moses. You guys are the ones that are selling Moses short. He's a true prophet. Yes, we believe he is. Then why aren't you honoring his prophecy? He's told you that a prophet, a great prophet that is like him is coming. And I'm here to tell you that that prophet has come. Back when we were in chapter 3, I shared a list, and I'll hit it quickly. Stuart Custer has noted several ways that the life of Jesus and the life of Moses are similar. Like, how would we know? Like, is there, are, are there similarities between the two? Is Jesus the prophet that is like Moses? Yes. Not on your handout, just hear the list. Both were preserved from infancy in their death and in their birth. Both were preserved from death, I'll say it correctly, in their infancy. When other babies are being killed. Other babies are dying in Jesus' day and Moses' day. But these two are preserved. Both spend many years in humble service. Moses as a shepherd for 40 years with his father-in-law. Jesus as a carpenter. Both demonstrated their calling by performing miracles. Both fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. Both rejected the easy way. Pharaoh forsook the house of, I'm sorry, Moses forsook the house of Pharaoh. Jesus chose not to take the offer of Satan to give him all the kingdoms of the world. Both of these men made the seas obey them. Obviously the Red Sea with Moses and the Sea of Galilee with the Lord Jesus. Both of their faces shone with glory coming from a mountain. Moses at Mount Sinai. Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Both fed thousands miraculously. Moses with the manna and Jesus with the loaves and the fishes. Both are rejected by their own people, the nation of Israel. Both are the two only divinely authorized lawgivers in the history of the world. Both redeemed their people from slavery. Moses redeeming his people from slavery to Egypt and Jesus from slavery to sin. Yeah, Jesus fulfills that prophecy. This is a point in a message where I want to just pause for a moment and I'm going to come down the home stretch after this. Because here's what's easy to do. We hear this and we read it and we think, okay, this is some good information. I'm learning more about the Old Testament. But we don't make connection. And here's what I want to challenge you to do. Start thinking, how does what we've been reading and studying for weeks, but especially this morning, how does that apply? This point right here, this verse 37. Hey, Sanhedrin. Moses said, there's coming this prophet that is like him. I'm here to tell you, Jesus is that prophet. He has already come. You should honor Moses as a true prophet. What I find is that there's an application that is here, but we need to intentionally apply it. Here's what we should ask ourselves. How, Lord, do I need to apply this text so that I don't end up making the same mistakes that the Jews of Stephen's day made? Would you write this down if you're taking notes? And then I want to explain it for a moment. Because I'm afraid that sometimes Christians, even here this morning, 
We can be exactly like the Jews in Stephen's day because they claimed, oh, we love Moses and we believe in Moses, but they're not living like it. His prophecy has come to pass, but you're not living like it. And guys, here's my point. Can I have your attention just for a moment? Watch. Sometimes we as Christians, this is what we do. We believe the Bible. We say we believe the Bible. And by the way, I'm talking about saved people. We really do believe the Bible. And we read it. And we believe it with our mind. And we go out of our way to hear it. To hear it taught and preached. And we've learned it. And we, again, we say we believe it. And to a degree in our mind we do. But the problem is it doesn't actually impact our life. That is very easy to happen. And in that way, we become just like the Jews of Stephen's day. They say they believe in Moses, but don't live like his prophecy. This comes true. We say we believe the Bible, but it doesn't actually affect our lives. I would invite you to evaluate yourself as I take just a moment to give you a little list, a sample, just a small sample of things. And I want you to honestly evaluate your life, like really evaluate, maybe the last week. Oh yeah, we believe the Bible, and I like learning what it says. And here's what we learn. The Bible says that we are commanded to worship the Lord. The Bible is full of commands. We are to worship the Lord. But y'all know that in this room right now, there are true Christians in the last week have not worshipped the Lord. Have not worshipped the Lord. The Bible commands us to give thanks, not just to be thankful and grateful, like, man, I really do like that, I'm thankful for it. No, to give thanks. But in this room, there are Christians in the last week, in fact, in a normal week of their life, they do not actually take time to talk to God and to start saying, Lord, thank you for that and that and that. And I worship you for that character and quality and that attribute. They don't do these two things. Here's another one. We know that the Word of God says we're supposed to confess our sins, but there are some here today. Can't remember the last time you've actually talked to God and confessed an actual sin. We are told to intercede for each other. I ask you this morning, who in this last week have you talked to God and interceded for that person? We are to bring our own request to the Lord. What request this week have you talked to God and said, God, would you please, in your mercy and your grace, would you please provide this? We are taught to forgive people. Is there anyone that's like, yes, I enjoy God's forgiveness, but I'm not granting forgiveness to this other person. I enjoy and I I, I like it, but I'm not granting it to someone else. We are told to give to the Lord. But there are folks that sitting in this room right now, you can't remember the last time you've given to the Lord cheerfully. The Bible is clear. We are supposed to be about the business and the various aspects of evangelism and discipleship and missions. But we're not involved in any of those things. It is so easy to just be a hearer of the word, but not a doer. Would you look at verse 38? This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received, the living, he, he, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. So I tried to think, and I think this is 
I'm, 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 let me warn you guys, I'm getting ahead of myself, and I know that, and I'm going to repeat this, but that's okay. I couldn't not do it today. And I think this is the main thing as we're getting to it. Like, what has Stephen been doing all along? And here's the perfect place. Hey, Sanhedrin, I've just mentioned Moses' miracles, all of them. And again, he didn't detail them, but they know them. And he's just mentioned how Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and receives a portion of the law of God and continues to get that. And eventually, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes the first five books of the Bible these living oracles that was given to him to give to us. Why is Stephen doing this? Why is he pointing out all these miracles and this meeting with God and receiving of the oracles? What's Stephen's point? And it goes back to what I was on a few minutes ago. These two things, these miracles and this receiving of the law validated Moses. It really validated Moses. And I think here's Stephen's point. Hey, Sanhedrin... Wouldn't you think, with all the confirmation and all the validation that Moses had received, think, our forefathers, let's go back in time, with all they had seen, all they had heard, all they had received, all they had benefited from, all the power of God and the blessings of God, with all of that, wouldn't you think that they would be loyal to Moses to the absolute end? Nothing could ever separate. Wouldn't you think, walking through the sea, the Red Sea, you'd be like, dude... There's no doubt that is the man of God. And he comes up down from this mountain and his face is shining and he has all this information nobody's ever heard before. And it's like, wow, that's the man of God. I am following him wherever. There's no doubt about it. And here's Stephen's point. You would think they would be fiercely loyal and yet they refuse to obey him. And what's worse, Sanhedrin, is you have refused to obey someone who's perform many more miracles and greater miracles and given greater teaching. I believe Stephen's telling the Sanhedrin, hey, all the validation and all the confirmation that came through Moses was not enough for our fathers. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Stephen's point, and again, it's going to flow through the rest of the chapter. Stephen's point is that Moses is the second most validated prophet in the history of Israel. And yet the people in Moses' day turned against him. Let that sink in. Israel's had a lot of prophets, a lot of great prophets, and they've done great things. And we're thinking about Elijah and Elisha. Man, they're way up there, right? They're way up there. And some of the other great prophets that God has used. But here's Stephen's message. Why is he spending so much time on Moses? Moses is the second most validated prophet in the history of Israel. And yet they rejected him and refused to obey him. What's your point? The point is, Sanhedrin, you think you're better than your forefathers because you think if you lived back in that day, you would not be like that. Oh, if we lived back then, we would not be against Moses. We would have followed Moses. We would have defended him. We would have loved him. Here's Stephen's point. No, you would not have. You would have hated Moses just like our forefathers did because right now you have hated and rejected one that is greater than Moses. Here's his point. The people of Moses' day, our forefathers, rejected the second most validated prophet in the history of Israel. But Sanhedrin, you are worse because you have rejected and actually killed, murdered the single most validated prophet in the history of Israel, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Christ, the Son of God. God in the flesh, you murdered him. You think you're better than your forefathers. You are no better. You're actually worse than they are. 
And the reason is because you're so attached to the temple. You're threatened by the ministry of Jesus because you think it may actually harm the ministry of the temple. And it may actually harm your livelihood. If we start believing that message, then we'll not be needed to offer any more sacrifice, the Levitical tribe might would say. Stephen's point, you're not better. You're worse. You've rejected and murdered one that is greater than the one they rejected. And so let's finish with these quick points this morning. Of all the details that Stephen could have included, why did he include these details this morning? I'm still writing, right? Why the things that he included? So I kind of went back over and I thought, let's just kind of recap. Verse 30 down to verse 39. What is his point? Here we go. Number one. His point in verse number 30 is, hey, Israel... You could have been spared of 40 years of slavery. Could have been spared. They rejected the man of God, the deliverer that God had sent him, and he went away into exile for 40 years. But meanwhile, the nation of Israel was in slavery for an additional 40 years rather than being delivered at the roughly 400-year time period. Could have been spared. But no, we rejected the deliverer that God has sent to us. And we're doing it again. Verse number 37. What's his point? Hey, this is the Moses, Stephen says, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like unto me from your brothers. God's going to raise this prophet. What's his point? Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. We could have been spared 40 years had we accepted him, but now his prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy. What's his point in verse 36 and 38? All these miracles and all of this receiving of the law. His point in verse 36 and 38. Israel knew Moses' credentials. They know it beyond a doubt. There is no doubt about it. It's confirmed. They've experienced it. And yet they turned their back on the prophet of God and refused to obey him. In the same way, the Sanhedrin was refusing to acknowledge Jesus. Though fully aware of his credentials. Blinded in essence. And then lastly, that's where we'll leave it with you this morning. What's Stephen's point in verse 35, 36? Hey, this Moses, the same one, the one you rejected, that's who God sends back. What's Stephen's point? God decides how he will save and by whom he will save. God makes the rules. It is God's wrath that people need to be saved from. It is God's punishment for sin that people need to be saved from. And so since it's his wrath and his punishment, then God makes the rules about what actually appeases his wrath and puts away the punishment. And God says it is only through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes the rules. No, you want another deliverer? I'm giving you Moses. You didn't want Joseph? I gave you Joseph a second time. You don't want Jesus? He's the only one I'm giving you. There will not be another. If you want to be saved, you will accept the Lord Jesus Christ. God makes the rules. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just two or three questions before we pray. We've looked at a lot today. Is there anyone here this morning, just between you and God, Is there anyone here this morning that in your heart of hearts, check your heart, like really check yourself. Not your rote answer and your memorized answer, like the one you really believe, the one you're relying on, 
What is your answer? Do you really think that you can get to heaven or that you will be saved from hell and you will go to heaven by some other way than by faith in Christ? Do you think you can kind of just come up with your own? Well, in my mind, I like to think that this will work. And it's anything other than you trusting just Jesus. If you have that in your mind, then you are wrong and you will suffer the consequences. God makes the rules about salvation and He's very clear. If you even in your mind think, well, I think you got to be a church member, I think you have to be baptized in water, I think you have to try to be a good person, and no. You are now adding to what God says. God makes the rules, and he said it is by faith in what Jesus did on the cross alone. Don't add to that. He makes the rules. Second question. This is for Christians. Is your, honestly answer, is your relationship with God personal to you? Do you have a personal relationship unique with you? Yes, standardized dynamics that all Christians have, but some unique things that you know you and God. He knows all the things about you. He has a special plan for you, and it is personal to you. Do you have that? If not, don't settle. Don't settle. It reminds me of this. Next question. Is there a place that in your world, this is a holy place because God reveals himself to you there. Do you have, Christians, do you have some places or a place in your life where you go there and you get quiet and you get alone and you get really still and you put all the blessings of life aside and just you and God meet and you have an experience with God and a track record. He reveals himself and he meets with you there. And that's where it's made personal. Get one of those if you don't have it. And then lastly, People in Stephen's day claimed they loved Moses and believed in Moses, but they didn't live like it. Is there part of you this morning that would have to admit, you know what, I say I believe the Bible, and I hear it, and I'm a listener, but I'm not a doer. And some of the simplest of things that we looked at today, that is all through the Bible, I just don't let the Bible impact me. I'm more informed. I leave here today more informed, but I'm not changed. Is there something in your life you're like, you can tell God right now, Lord, by your grace, I want to implement this in my life to show that I really, really believe your word. Let's pray. Father, Lord, would you take this text and these truths, and I pray that you would drive them deep within us. Lord, I am thankful. I thank you that your blessings are not limited to the land of Israel because I've never been there. Lord, I thank you that you met me just outside of Asheville, North Carolina, and that you meet me in that room at the house and in that chair at the house and in this office over here and in that truck out there. And Lord, I thank you that you've had a personal relationship with me and you have great plans. Father, I thank you that you gave me faith in the one way of salvation. Lord, if anyone here this morning or watching online or in the future does not have that. Lord, they think there's another way. May they forsake their own logic and just surrender to you, the Lord of the way of salvation, and receive the one way through your Son, Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, may our lives give evidence that we really are people of your word. We love it, and we seek to be sensitive to it and implement it in our lives. Let us do that even now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.